0: Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. Our show for you today comes from a trip that T2P2 made out to Washington, D.C. We had a residency out there where we did seven days of seven shows. And so this is one of those that we did with Norm Ornstein. Norm Ornstein is a longtime observer of Congress and politics. He is a contributing editor and columnist for National Journal and The Atlantic, and is an election eve analyst for BBC News. He served as co-director of the AEI Brookings Election Reform Project and participates in AEI's Election Watch series. He's also served as a senior counselor to the continuity of government commissions. Mr. Ornstein led a working group of scholars and practitioners that helped shape the law known as McCain-Feingold. That reformed the campaign financing system, he was elected as fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in two thousand and four he 's also the author of several books. I hope you enjoy the show is uh, good good so um
1: thank you so much for being here and uh, uh, I appreciate i don't usually I try and be the most dressed up person on the show, but you have shamed me uh, in the first two minutes. So it's very. You look very nice. Thank you. Well, this suit at the White House—they
2: call the audacity of taupe. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I don't. This is. The, this
1: is
3: I. Don't, well, we, we can, can
1: take the, the night off. <laughs> yes. Um. So. Uh, in addition, uh, so thank okay. you, God. no. So. Uh, in addition to being uh, with us and being very well-dressed, um, you uh, are here when there's all kinds of news going on, which is... I, I, I both want to say thank you for being here when there's lots of news, but then I also feel like with the kind of constant campaign cycle that we're in, there's always political news to some degree, although today in particular we had big news in that uh, Scott Walker dropped out.
2: And so just... <laughs> Where do you kick a guy when he's down? Come on, he can hear it. Um, well, you know when you when you start a campaign and your slogan is "No Child Left Awake." Oh. oh. But I want you to think about it. Scott, Scott Walker couldn't even outlast Jim Gilmore. Uh, Has anyone actually seen Jim Gilmore? Is he actually running for? You know he couldn't even make the Kitty debate. He uh, could, did they keep, I didn't realize they even kept they had anyone off. a threshold off. of 1%, and he couldn't make that, so he live-tweeted uh, both <laughs> debates as a presidential candidate. Oh, that's, and, uh, I did that, too. Yeah. So, am, I, <laughs> am I running for president so, now? Well, you know, I mentioned that, you know, he couldn't even beat out Gilmore or George Pataki, and somebody said, what else have they got to do? And I said, well, you know, they could bin, binge-watch uh, Orange is the New Black and Morgan and Uh, Downton Abbey, but then they can do it now, so. Yeah,
1: well, there is something interesting about this because, uh, again, uh, there was just a column in our local Star Tribune about, we have an open congressional seat in Minnesota and how nobody sort of wants to run for it. Um, And uh, I'm gonna keep talking. talking. So uh, nobody wants to run for this seat uh, because running for office is so horrible You constantly are just having to raise money, and then you don't do anything. Uh, You get into office and you just uh, fight and bicker, and And raise more money. And raise more money. And so, uh, I mean, obviously, if you actually get to the presidency, it's something. But there seems to be, to me, some level of that sort of uh, the you know middle school kid who thinks I am going to be the next uh, you know LeBron James or uh, young man who thinks he'll be Mm. the next Taylor Swift or whatever it is. (laughs) I, I, why? Why? What drives? How many these
2: people? young men in the audience think they'll be the next? Uh, <laughs> the next How yeah. many men on stage think they, they think will be the next? Stage. It's Brandon. Uh,
3: no,
1: but what I, I am curious because you've been watching this for a long time. What drives some of these people, in
2: your estimation? You know what's amazing actually is that we still have uh, as many people running for and getting elected to office who want to do something good for the country as we get. But otherwise, uh, increasingly, uh, what you see is either people who, for whom it's a stepping stone to something else or a place where you can get a lot of attention, where you might not get a lot of attention, or people who are on some kind of a crusade and uh, the institutions don't matter, even all of the pain, including the raising money, uh, doesn't matter. So it's a lot of dysfunction.
1: So we were talking a little bit backstage. Uh, You've been watching some of this slightly longer than I have, uh, by a year or two. And um, this is, to me, it's the weirdest. It's the strangest sort of uh, presidential campaign. And that's saying something, because 2012 was pretty weird, too.
2: This is weird. This is (laughs) weird. And it's weird. I I was saying to Tate before we started that on the Republican side with – now uh, 15 candidates, um, and uh, you know, you're kind of hoping they'll go into a haunted house and uh, you know, drop one by one. Uh, <laughs> but the closest analogy to it uh, is really the Democrats in 1976, where they started with 13 candidates, including uh, people we long remember fondly like Milton Shapp. The governor, the governor of Pennsylvania. How could we forget um, yes. uh,
1: those famous shapisms? Yeah. Uh, but, and then you know, there was Larry
2: and Curly. Um, <laughs> Jimmy Carter was you know, seen by very few people early on as a real possibility. Uh, but it was a year where, after Nixon, everybody wanted a, uh, an outsider, somebody who didn't seem like the typical politician. And here was a guy who'd been a one-term governor of Georgia, a peanut farmer, a nuclear scientist, uh, been in the Navy, and it, he just kind of caught on. And, uh, you know, when people talk about Donald Trump now, oftentimes they think, uh, at least a lot of the pundits have said repeatedly, well, he's peaked and he's gonna die now, that he's a little bit like Herman Cain or uh, uh, Minnesota's own Michelle Bachmann. Um, who, you know, got a lot of excitement early on and then just completely tanked. He may be more like Jimmy Carter or Barry Goldwater in uh, 1964. But I will tell you this. There was audible panic in the audience when you said that. You know, if Trump does get elected, there's going to be a lot of people disappointed because before long he'll leave us for a younger country.
3: (laughs)
1: Uh, is, so the Trump jokes write themselves. <laughs> is, is, what, what's driving? I mean, to go back to sort of what's driving that with us at some point having sixteen or seventeen Republican candidates now, what are we down to? Fourteen or fifteen? Um, is it because they see? Is it because it's an open seat? Because they see Hillary Clinton is particularly weak? Just because uh, they've been waiting a while? I, I'm well. One,
2: it's an open seat, and there is. No obvious front runner, which is kind of strange in a way, because for the Republicans, the tradition has been that there's an obvious front runner, usually somebody who ran the last time didn't quite make it, finished second. Um, You know, the candidate who finished second last time is running, and that's Rick Santorum,
1: and he's Uh, and and he he was
2: able to somehow qualify for the Kitty debate. He he made it (laughs) to the Kitty debate, but you know, has gained no traction. Jeb Bush, you would think, would be an obvious choice. Uh, in the old, old days, you could uh, get all the fundraisers sort of dominate in money, and everybody else would get squeezed out. Doesn't work that way anymore. Just think about it. That uh, when uh, Bush announced there was going to be this shock and awe, he said with credibility, "You know, I'm going to raise a hundred million dollars well before this process even begins. Unprecedented." Then Ted Cruz gets in, the outsider of outsiders at that point, and within a week. He's got four people, two brothers, two others, billionaires, who put $35 million into a super PAC. So it's a different world now. And then you got the people like George Pataki. <clears throat> you know, he was a two-term governor in New York, uh, presumably an established figure. He's been out of the public eye for more than a decade. Nobody paid any attention to him. More than likely, he could walk down Madison Avenue uh, a year or two ago, and nobody would even blink. Oh, there's
1: some sad, that's like not it's walk sad. of shame, it's a walk of an- anonymity. Or but, something. you know,
2: so he announces, and he gets in the kitty debate, but I don't know how many times, but he's been on Sunday talk shows probably a half dozen times now. How many times do you think George Pataki would have been on Sunday talk shows if he weren't a candidate for president? Zero. So you get attention, and when you're up there, even in a kitty debate, and maybe you don't get the 23 million people who watched the CNN debate, at least for the first hour, I think it was about 67 by the, by the third hour, but you know. 67, not people, people. okay, <laughs> um, that's a
1: significant uh, drop off. Uh,
2: and you know, 23 million people to start, and there was, for the first time on CNN, uh, a plane that wasn't lost. It was really good. <laughs> oh, wow. uh Jeez, wow. Malaysia Airlines jokes. Those yes. um... you, you know, they get recycled. Uh, but you know, if you're on the kitty debate, probably a million people watch it. Well that's nine hundred and ninety nine thousand nine hundred and seventeen more than But to what ever. end? Is it just is it just ego then? What else are you gonna do? And you get I
1: don't know. Through. I find things to occupy my time. I have a, I have a yard waste right. to compost.
2: Uh, I, have a, I have a cat that needs feeding and petting. And if, if you have been in public life and uh, you've been a focus of attention and you're out of it, and you can somehow, everybody can convince themselves that a plausible way in which all these other candidates are going to falter and fall short, and you've always got a few people, including those who will become consultants and get paid, who can blow the smoke that suggests that you've actually got more chance than you think. So if you're a Pataki, you're thinking, well, there's still a path for uh, uh, one of the six moderate Republicans left in the country uh, to somehow gain some traction or at least get a message across. And then you've got a bunch of others who think that in an open contest anything can happen. And let's face it now, if you get one sugar daddy, one billionaire who says, I like you, you're my person, you can sustain this for a very long time uh, if you uh, if you want to. And if you have a bunch of candidates in the race, it's an incentive for a bunch of candidates to stay in the race, because anything can happen.
1: Okay, I, there's a lot of questions I could add, but let's go through some of the particular candidates. So we already talked just a little bit about uh, uh, Scott Walker dropping out today. Yeah. The one before that was Rick Perry, who again, uh, four years ago, was seen as sort of... He was going to be the giant killer who would knock off Mitt Romney. And then he got the
2: glasses that made him look really smart. Uh, and, um, glasses have that effect. Yeah, I was going to say uh, something. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I was really sad when he dropped out because, uh, you know, I, I loved having Rick Perry there the last time. It was great. I mean, my favorite, uh, there were so many things. My favorite Rick Perry moment was when he was asked what he would do about the West Bank, and he said he'd bring back free checking. And so, uh, so you lose a candidate like that, and it's like uh, a real loss, because for some of them, you can't write the material very easily. you got to grasp for the jokes.
1: Uh, uh, so uh, Rick Perry has dropped out. Uh, uh, Scott Walker has dropped out. Do you have a uh, like? Do you have a, a list at home where you're like, and this and this is who you know I see is is next or next, or uh, do you do it based on viability or, or what?
2: Uh, it's really hard these days, in part because you can have almost no viability, but if you have a minimal amount of money, you can stay in the race. I mean, my guess is uh, Bobby Jindal uh, is one of the. Uh, zombies out there who may keep walking along for a while but really there's no no traction uh, out there of course you know very few things more popular in american popular culture than zombies so. it's true he'd be our first zombie president um, um, maybe more zombie show on television including cable news than anything else uh there's uh, there's something to be said about Azami. He
1: would just follow the polls, yes. like they just mindlessly. Yeah. Uh, and you know, they all and the Democrats. You have
2: you know a couple of people who are sort of in that category. I feel a little sorry for Lincoln Chafee. See, and this is even <laughs> even calling Lincoln Chafee a Democrat is kind of unnerving to some people because it's relatively recent development. Well, of course. Uh, Keep in mind that Bernie Sanders has never been a Democrat. There you uh, go. and uh, still isn't, and disavowed the Democratic nomination for the Senate last time. But Lincoln Chafee, you know, has tried to get a little bit of traction. Sanders gets that excitement. He's got the slogan, Feel the Burn. They tried it with Chafee, but Feel the Chafe. <laughs> Just doesn't work. Uh,
1: I wonder. <laughs> I do want to back up slightly to, uh, again, I I still have this struggle for, uh, so I want to test. that Lincoln Chafee um, is this very sort of long shot candidate. Uh, Jim Webb is another one who on paper would seem like actually there's some uh, case to be made for Jim Webb to be an interesting candidate. He was former secretary of the Navy, worked under Reagan, worked with, uh, who was a democratic senator. uh he's an author of many, many books uh but then the way that he's running his campaign uh, he did not do a he did not come out and say, I'm running for president. He issued a statement saying, I am on his website saying I am running for president. call me if you would like to talk about
2: it uh, And I wonder how many calls he got okay. um you know it, it's uh for Web, one of the other problems, which is, you know, some of it is sort of not a a traditional way of running, Um, but here's a guy who has been pro-war and pro-gun in a party where those things don't work all that well. It's actually one of the things that Bernie Sanders is trying to deal with and doing reasonably well so far because it hasn't been a focal point, but if he gains actually more support, if if he, as is entirely possible, wins Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, because those are states that are in his wheelhouse, right. um, then people are going to focus a little bit on the fact that, partly coming from Vermont, he's been uh, you know, uh, strongly supported by the NRA in the past. Those um, things don't work too well. There are litmus tests in both parties, and I think Jim Webb fails a couple of major litmus tests, but also, even though he's a little bit of a populist, uh, just can't compete on that front uh, with uh, Bernie uh, or with uh, uh, even with Clinton. So, what is it? Um, well, it, but you, you know, you're out there, and at some point there will be democratic debates. The first one actually coming up on October the uh, 13th uh, in uh, Las Vegas. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure why. Um, I actually. Because uh, they can
1: make all of these same Donald Trump jokes.
2: That, oh, I guess that would no, be Atlantic City. Actually, what's interesting is no, it would be now it would be more Las Vegas because he's pulled out of Atlantic City. But I'm, they haven't announced where, and I'm really hoping it will be at the Trump Hotel. Wouldn't that be amazing? So
1: delicious. Uh, so let's try, uh, talk just briefly about uh, Bernie Sanders. What What is it that actually is... Driving that because I, when he first came out, when Bernie Sanders first announced, a lot of people said, "Oh, this is perfect for Hillary Clinton. You know, she needs somebody to run to her left to show that she's not uh, this uh, uber yeah. liberal." And she, dr- if she could have drawn a candidate like out on paper, a seventy-something-year-old, uh, sl- self-avowed socialist from a tiny state. Uh, who is seemingly perpetually unhappy uh, is the guy that came, but yet he's doing relatively well, particularly in Iowa and New Hampshire.
2: Well, we have to keep in mind. I mean, to, to be serious for a half a moment, um, whatever, uh, whenever there's a difficult economic time in America, populism emerges, and uh, this is a particularly acute time. Even though our economy is doing better now, certainly than the rest of the uh, of the world, um, when you go through uh, a difficult time driven by a financial crisis, uh, and then you get a bailout, and the people bailed out are the miscreants who got us into the trouble in the first place, then they get bonuses. You're going to have populism, and it's there on the left and it's there on the right. And it's more significant on the right, the Tea Party movement. Uh, against the Occupy Wall Street movement because the Occupy Wall Street movement basically occupied uh, and then they didn't want to stay in those places and then they didn't know what to do. Uh, Tea Party people organized, got candidates, uh, actually had a movement going, but it's there on the left and it's there not just because uh, there's an unhappiness Uh, over uh, the way the economy has played out and the fact that uh, the ultra-rich have gotten away with it and the rest of us have struggled, but because there really is a deep and growing inequality and in part, too, because uh, the one-tenth of one percent have been so conspicuous in their wealth and, I think, insensitive, uh, almost in a Marie Antoinette-like way. Um, So uh, uh, three or four years ago, President Obama suggested that maybe it's time to change the tax rate for carried interest, right, which hedge fund people especially abuse. They can. How dare pay. he? Yes. Well, Steve Schwartzman, who is the head of the Blackstone Group, one of the biggest uh, investment firms in the country and a multi-billionaire, Likened Obama raising this issue, I kid you not, to Hitler invading Poland. <laughs> right. uh, so when Hitler did, did raise interest rates on capital
1: right. gains taxes
2: shortly before going into Poland, we all saw that. <laughs> For some reason, uh, these uh, billionaires use Holocaust analogies. Uh, and uh, you know another one, uh, Kleiner, who's the head of Kleiner Perkins, the biggest uh, venture capital firm in Silicon Valley. Um, You know, of course, a big controversy in San Francisco because uh, poor and middle class people have been forced out of the city as all these young people working for Google and Facebook uh, live in the city, and they get buses that take them out to uh, 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 the uh, area, uh, Mountain View and the like, where their big firms are, and, you know, they're getting these apartments, and they're making tons of money, and so they're bidding up the prices. And the people who live in the city um, are really unhappy, they see these buses coming through. And one of the people who defended it was Kleiner's wife, and a bunch of people said, you know, oh, you're just one of those wealthy people. And Kleiner said, you know, this reminds me of Hitler rounding up the Jews. Mm-hmm. Honest to God, uh, you know, it's people in that position who have done better in the last seven years than they ever did before see themselves as victims. And all of that makes a Bernie Sanders candidacy have uh, a little bit more traction, at least now. But I think Bernie got into this uh, to try and push the party towards the left. And now he's getting these crowds. And... uh, he's feeling uh, like maybe he can actually do this. So- As Howard Dean thought, maybe he could actually do this. Um, but the fate will probably be just about the same. You, I mean, you've written, though, about the fact that there's... Uh,
1: there's extremism uh, in, in this political process, but it, it, at least your hypothesis has been it's been much more on the right, that it's much more. Yeah. I don't know, it, is the rise of Bernie Sanders? A lot of people would point to that and say it's balancing out. Now we're getting an amount of extremism on the left that mirrors the right.
2: Well, uh, first of all, um, if you look at what Sanders is saying, I can't really find anything that compares with. Uh, The now lamented Scott Walker saying that he would repeal the National Labor Relations Act, get rid of the National Labor Relations Board, and basically blow up the entire union movement. Or Ben Carson uh, saying that Obamacare is the worst thing to happen in the country since slavery. Uh, I'm not making this stuff up. Um, Or saying uh, a Muslim cannot be president of the United States. You know, when that happened, I tweeted, uh, Dr. Ben Carson has performed intricate surgery to separate himself from the Constitution. Uh, Hilarious. So uh, so Sanders is there on the left. But, you know, Clinton is sort of adjusting her policies a little bit. And mostly, you know, if you talk about policies like free college for everybody, that's Mm -hmm. certainly extreme. But, it's not that crazy. So what, is,
1: what is the weakness then with Hillary Clinton? Because, uh, you know, two years ago I had friends who asked me, about this, and I said, Oh, it, you know, it, it definitely for the Democratic nomination, she seems like a shoo in. And I would have said back then, probably, you know, she'll walk to the presidency. And it's not because necessarily I was some huge proponent, I just looked at sort of, she had these huge approval ratings, she had the entire resume, and then I had folks like my mother and my aunt who were still upset about 2008 and who were like, that was nice that you all did that thing with that young man, but now it's our turn. And
2: uh, you
0: know, there,
2: there are a few things. I mean, there are some self-inflicted wounds. Um, it was probably never going to be a complete waltz to a nomination because you're going to have people, among other things, like Sanders and his adherents who would want to use this to push her in the direction they wanted to move in. Uh, but there's another phenomenon here, too. I mean, a part of it is there's still a lot of questions about the Clintons and what we'll have to go through uh, and the uh, email controversy, which I suspect in the end won't amount to very much, but it's out there and it evokes all of those other things. Uh, and then there's another phenomenon you have to keep in mind, that you have a press corps that desperately wants and needs a big contest on the Democratic side if you're a reporter covering politics and you're assigned the Democratic race and there's no contest, you're dead for months. You're not gonna be on the television shows. You're not gonna be on the front pages of the paper. The stories you're gonna have to write about are the policy positions, and your editors will put those on page 12 if you're lucky. So, generating a contest becomes really important. And so if you look at the arc of coverage of Clinton, it's relentless on the email stuff, but it's also her polls are dropping. The vice president might get in. Look at the Sanders crowds. Some of that is real. Some of that is we gotta get a contest going. And nobody will be happier other than a lot of Republicans if Joe Biden gets into the race than the press corps covering politics. Now they got a contest so uh, we're gonna stop in just a second here and in the
1: second half of the show we open it up to all of you all to ask questions of our guests and so start thinking about those but um, uh, brief uh, briefly this is lightning round uh, so uh, is our system more broken than it was before yes okay thank you uh, I don't know do you
2: want to... go to the bars now <laughs> Okay, so uh, we are going to turn it over
1: to our guests Can we do a tremendous <laughs> round of applause? Uh, <laughs> okay, so uh, if we could just bring you up a little bit so that I can see. If you have a question, raise your hand, and uh, I will probably just yell, uh, yes, you, sir. Uh, yes, uh, uh, my question deals with New Hampshire
2: and Iowa. In your view, in the process, how important are they? And the big picture of the political process, are they more side spectacle and money generators for meeting yeah, out the candidates? Yeah. So if I can just
1: repeat the question uh, so we can uh, make sure everybody heard it. So how important are Iowa and New Hampshire? Are they side spectacles? Are they about raising money or profile? Or are they really key to the process?
2: Uh, well, at one level, if you look at uh, the last couple of Republican races, for example, uh, the winners in Iowa disappeared very quickly. So it's not a guarantee of success. Uh, The same is true uh, in uh, New Hampshire. Um, But what they've done in the past is they've been the winnowing out forces. They're the ones that get candidates who just struggle and can't quite make it, and then the money uh, dries up. One, just to pick an example from our native Minnesota, uh, Tim Polanyi. Uh, who started out uh, as the Scott Walker of uh, of, uh, of 2012, Uh, actually a much stronger uh, Scott Walker, but just couldn't make it and put everything into Iowa, bordering Minnesota just as it borders Wisconsin, and reached a point where he just wasn't getting anywhere, uh, and he didn't have a huge uh, fortune to draw on, and didn't have the super PACs back in him, where he was going to have to mortgage his house to keep it going, and he dropped out. And a lot of candidates dropped out then, and it moved it down to a smaller number. may not work that way this time. So they're important, and they get an enormous amount of focus, and they pull in a big (coughs) bunch of money uh, because so many people come, and the hotels and the restaurants, uh, the uh, television stations there do incredibly well, uh, but they're less significant than they used to be. And if you're, you know, one thing just to keep in mind on the Democratic side, uh, and it's it's true in a more general way, they're very unrepresentative of both the parties at large but mostly of the country as a whole. They're, they tend to be homogeneous, much more rural, rural, and very white. And for Bernie Sanders, who's got a very liberal Democratic party in Iowa, who has New Hampshire bordering on Vermont, uh, This should be his wheelhouse. But then you move on to places like South Carolina, and there isn't a larger national base for him unless he can somehow eat very substantially into the African-American vote, the minority vote, where he has struggled. And on the Republican side, in Iowa, you have a much more conservative evangelical base, uh, and and even though uh, it shouldn't be the center of anti-immigration activity, it is in a lot of ways. Uh, it, Steve King uh, being one of the most significant politicians there. Uh, it If it winnows out people, doesn't necessarily winnow out the people who otherwise would have staying power. So
1: it, I've heard arguments on both sides of whether Iowa and New Hampshire, and the argument for uh, having these two small states at the beginning of the process is that they uh, are very invested in this, and they're small enough that – Virtually every single uh, person in the state can meet the candidate. So Brandon is from Iowa, and uh, George McCartney was mowing yeah. his lawn this past yeah. week. Uh, so, uh, but I mean, th- that's the argument for it. It sounds like you're saying that you don't think that this is necessarily
2: good for the process. Uh, you know, at, at one level, having some <clears throat> retail politic, having a requirement that you actually get down and interact directly with rank-and-file voters in some fashion. That's not a bad thing. Um, otherwise, you know, it's mostly television advertising, and the television advertising matters as well. But it's, it's a distortion of the process. And then you've got to keep one other thing in mind, which is the caucuses in Iowa are sort of weird vehicles. And they're weird because they take place one evening, and they last for several hours. And so you have to have people who can not just go out, find a time when they can vote, and then leave, but go somewhere and stay for hours, and it's a very complicated process. Uh, One of the things that worked against Hillary Clinton last time is because what they tend to do is you get a bunch of candidates, and then people go to different corners of the room in in the caucus, and then they do some votes, and then they winnow out candidates until you can get to the final stages. You've got to figure out how you can uh, get the second and third choices to come over to you. And Barack Obama's team did that much better than Clinton the last time. She's much better prepared this time. But it's the activists who have the staying power. And it's the people who have the resources uh, where they don't have to work at night or where they can have a babysitter who will stay for four hours uh, who tend to be the ones who dominate so it's a distortion of the process, mm-hmm. even if you get this retail politicking. And, uh, you know, it's probably time to change things. All right. Oh, uh, I do Sorry, want to Iowa. Uh, uh,
1: yes, yes, right, right here. here.
3: Hi, I'm uh, a fellow Canadian. Uh, let me ask you, if Trump wins,
2: <laughs> <My> how, many, <laughs> how many people
3: do you think will try to scale that wall then.
2: Uh, yeah. uh, first of all, let me tell you, I, I'm from, I'm born in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. I lived in Minnesota as a young person. My father was Canadian, and we moved to Canada when I was about eight, and I stayed there for several years, uh, living in Toronto, uh, then in the Maritime Provinces, in Moncton, New Brunswick, and I went to high school in Winnipeg with Neil Young. Uh, so, <laughs> just, uh, so Neil was uh, sort of uh, performed all the time in assemblies uh, and he had a little group called the Straight Gators and they played at a coffee house and uh, you know, we thought he was a fabulous guitar player had this kind of reedy voice and we figured he could probably make it as a side man if he went to, uh, into the business and when we needed a band uh, for a school dance or a prom, we had to go elsewhere we needed a real band, a dance band so we went to the high school uh, mile away and got a great dance band. And when he went to L.A. to make his way in the music business, they went to L.A. and changed their name to the Guess Who. So my high school, we had two Hall of Fame acts. Uh, you know, we thought everybody must.
1: So you just, did you filibuster that woman?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to bring a little a little human interest. Uh, to... So. Scott Walker, uh, if we're looking at all the reasons why poor Scott uh, couldn't make it, maybe near the top is his uh, proposal that we consider a wall between Wisconsin and Canada, since the border between Wisconsin and Canada runs right down the middle of Lake Superior. (laughs) So it would have to be a wall probably 400 feet deep, and you would need uh, a lot of frogmen uh, and women to construct that wall. And my guess is Canadians don't need to worry. And not too many of them would try to swim across, even if there were no wall. So, rest easy, Canadian. But if
3: Trump were to win, do you think people would come to Canada in droves?
2: Of- if uh, Trump were to win, Canada's not far enough away. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I'm actually looking at Bondi Beach in Australia. <laughs> really nice area, suburb of Sydney.
1: Uh, okay, other other folks in the audience, up there, sir, yes, uh, one of our hosts of this week, yes, hello uh, oh. So you, you mentioned uh, Howard Dean earlier in passing, yes. and Howard Dean was actually the first candidate that I ever gave money to And I feel like I'm really- How much
2: worried. money um, did you- um, uh, I think I gave $500 yeah. Whoa, and that man works
1: in a theater,
2: <laughs> that's like a year's salary <laughs>
1: Wanted to give money to Bernie Sanders, but you said something that sort of dismissed him as an actual electable candidate. And I want to ask, what is it about him that you think is, you know, is is his Achilles
2: heel? Well, I think Tane mentioned a few things: a seventy-something Jewish guy with a Brooklyn accent from Vermont uh, who has never been a Democrat and uh, has run as a socialist. Uh, just, it's just going to be a hard time winning a nomination, uh, which is not to say that he won't be a factor, um, and uh, his passion and uh, the fact that he feels like he has nothing to lose, uh, he, one of the reasons that he, uh, I think, gained some traction is actually in a bizarre way one of the reasons that uh, Donald Trump is gaining traction. Uh, if you didn't read it, um, there was a really interesting piece in the Washington Post uh, a few days ago by a guy who was a, uh, the speechwriter for Mark Sanford uh, when he was governor of South Carolina.
1: Before he took his walk on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, yeah, yes. and he did not write uh, that he was
2: walking on the Appalachian Trail. but. This guy is a terrific speechwriter who's written a a really good book about the bizarre world of uh, working for Mark Sanford. But he kind of dissected Trump's speech as being completely different from politicians. And among other things, that Trump has the quality that good comics and satirists have, which is the punchline comes at the end of the sentence. And he doesn't speak with qualifications and like parsing words. And that's Bernie, as well. And that, in this uh, anti-politician age, uh, appeals to people. Um, And it's one of the things that Hillary Clinton, who, if you know her in a one-on-one setting, or even a small group setting, is dazzling, warm, connects. But to a lot of people, they listen to the parsing of words, and it sounds like politician. And that's language that doesn't work all that well. uh, other
1: other folks, other
2: questions? Yes.
0: Yes, right here
3: one of the winning
1: factors of Barack's campaign was social media, and so I'm curious if you think that digital technologies will
2: have a huge impact this time and what those would be. So the,
1: the impact of social media digital technologies. I'll uh,
2: text you. Uh, <laughs> uh, actually, that yes. That is so, yes. so 2008. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, actually, yes. And uh, on the Republican side, one of the things that's happened that has given all this traction to the insurgent anti-establishment candidates And keep in mind, you know, it's early, but you look at all of these polls, and the fact is if you take the five uh, most significant anti-establishment candidates, never held office or haven't been in office for a very long time, Donald Trump, Carly Fiorina, Ben Carson, Ted Cruz, uh, Mike Huckabee, they're getting in the polls combined about 65 to 70% support from Republicans out there. The establishment types are getting about 20%, the three main ones uh, in Bush and Rubio and Kasich. And partly what's happening is that the Republican, or conservative, I should say, tribal media, talk radio, the Laura Ingrams and Mark Levins uh, and Rush Limbaugh's of the world, the bloggers uh, like Eric Erickson, and amplified by all that social media, are pounding away at the Republican establishment, including their own congressional leaders, and enhancing this sense of antipathy uh, towards their own party and their own uh, party's uh, leaders. And then you've got all these emails that people get, a lot of them, you know, that sound so plausible on the surface that have ridiculous stuff built into them, uh, lies. You know, some of it emerged over this Jade Helm, Uh, Controversy, which, if you didn't read about it, was this exercise that the Defense Department does every year, usually in Texas, a lot of military bases, sort of gaming out a a, a lot of different scenarios. And you had this conspiracy notion that this was actually an attempt by Barack Obama to become president for life and do a hostile takeover of the country to a point where the governor of Texas sent the Texas National Guard to protect against this phenomenon. (laughs) because people are getting and hearing all this stuff, and they think it's real. So social media will play a role in that sense. And the question on the Democratic side is whether Hillary Clinton, who's taken on a lot of the uh, infrastructure and machinery of what Obama built, can build the same kind of infrastructure. For Obama, it started with money, with the small donations that now it's a very different world. You know, when Gary Hart became the insurgent candidate who almost knocked off Minnesota's own Walter Mondale uh, in uh, 1984. Uh, He, although, you know, this is how things work with the media, Mondale got 51 percent in the Iowa caucuses. Next was none of the above. Gary Hart got 16 percent. None of the above got 19. And all the news magazines and all the coverage was Hart, the giant killer. But then he couldn't sustain it. Why? Because got this surge of people just like you giving $500 to Howard Dean who wanted to give money to Gary Hart. But what they had to do was write a check, figure out a place to send it because he didn't have a lot of offices, put it in the mail, it would arrive, somebody had to open the envelopes, endorse the checks, get them to the bank, have them clear to have money. By then he was almost out of the race. Now you flick a little button and the money's right there and yet that moved into a social network. And the question is whether Clinton or anybody else can build that same kind of social network. So it's more
1: money, uh, more vitriol, and more lies. Uh, and just, uh, you paint such a what picture be better future. for
2: improv? <laughs> uh, I ask you. <laughs> so, we'll so we'll have for For the country,
1: not so good. Uh, OK, uh, we have time for maybe one, or is it right here
3: in front? How good is Trump's ground game, and how much does it matter?
2: He doesn't have a ground game, although he is now starting to build a little bit of an infrastructure. And what we don't know is how much he can sustain this, but at the same time, you know, all the rules that apply to other candidates don't necessarily apply to Trump because you've got just a lot of people out there who hate the idea of having business as usual, they don't want somebody whose calling card is that he can uh, not just express the difference between the Kurds and the Quds, uh, but go into great detail on uh, policies. Uh, they've had that, and what has it brought them? Nothing. They don't want somebody who acts like a typical politician, and when he says... I'm not going to uh, you know uh, bow down to the Koch brothers. Uh, I've used my money to buy these other politicians. Nobody's going to buy me. That resonates. But will those people go to the caucuses and stay for four hours? Or will they turn out for? <coughs> that we just don't know. And how much he will invest in building a traditional political organization remains to be seen. Before we go, nobody's asked about Carly Fiorina. Oh. and I just want to I want to say one thing. I didn't make this up, but I thought it was the best tweet post-debate, which was, if Carly Fiorina really wants to destroy Planned Parenthood, she should become its CEO. (laughs) I wish I'd come up with this.
1: So I have two last questions, and uh, one is uh, playing to our. I know that there are a few uh, folks with Minnesota connections in the audience, right? Like, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, good. Uh, uh, we need to ride home. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Ludafisk
2: for you after the uh, after the. Deal. Uh,
1: the question is, uh, we we've had uh, you know Mondale and, and Humphrey, and we we've had Palenty and Walker that didn't get as far. You know, we had McGovern and. Uh, but none of them uh, get there. And I'm curious, is there something about that uh, upper Midwest part of the country that breeds a politician that doesn't
2: fit into this paradigm that, that you uh, paint? Uh, well, that's a question you could answer in a bunch of different ways. One thing is, I grew up in a Minnesota where both parties were models for the rest of the country. They produced... Uh, great figures for whom politics was a noble profession, uh, and they aimed at solving problems. Um, And uh, that's, uh, in Minnesota, has also changed on the Republican side, Uh, maybe changing back slightly a little bit, but they veered off into a pretty radical uh, territory. uh, but, you know, I, my heroes uh, growing up were uh, started with uh, Hubert Humphrey and uh, with Walter Mondale and with Orville Freeman uh, and with uh, Don Fraser, uh, uh, the former uh, congressman from uh, Minnesota, mayor of Minneapolis, for whom I uh, worked when I first came to Washington. And on the Republican side, we had an attorney general named Doug Head, who was absolutely wonderful, Arnie Carlson, the governor, uh, Elmer Anderson, who were just a lot of them. Now it's getting tougher. Uh, The fact is, uh, and I continue to believe, that Hubert Humphrey and Walter Mondale would have made great presidents. Uh, For Mondale, he happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. 1984 was a terrible time to run. For Humphrey, he came within an eyelash. And uh, probably if Lyndon Johnson had handled things differently, um, he might well have won in 1968 and would be a very different uh, country today. but, you know, a lot of those figures, prairie populists, anti-war populists like uh, George McGovern, out of sync with the times, um, but, you know, you look at them and then you look at somebody like a Scott Walker, a Tim Pelenni really more of a traditional conservative who actually governed uh, as a fair, fairly much as a centrist and then moved to the right as the party was uh, moving to the right. Um, But now it's just a very different culture and a very different uh, world, and it's going to be an interesting question to see if um, we move back uh, at some point to a a direction where um, more centrist figures can operate. But I also look at, you know, uh, I think Minnesota's two senators, uh, Amy Klobuchar and Al Franken, are just uh, terrific exemplars of how you can be... Uh, uh, problem solvers, so and still there. So that was going to be my final question.
1: Which uh, we've talked about a lot of things that are, are funny, but also kind of terrifying. And uh, is there a path forward? Like, what is it that we uh, should do or could do? Not necessarily go vote for this person or do or make this policy change, but. I don't know. Is there something along the lines of the process or the questions that we should be asking of candidates or turning on
2: or turning off certain things? Um, Well, first the depressing uh, part of the answer, which is (laughs) the problem, unfortunately, is not just a structural one. It's a cultural one now. Our politics are tribal. So, you know, 1961 or 62, a pollster asked a question, Would you feel uncomfortable if a child of yours married somebody from another race, another religion, or another party? Mm -hmm. And the answers uncomfortable with somebody from another party were around four or five percent. The same question was asked a year ago, and we now live in a world where more people would be uncomfortable if a child of theirs married somebody from the other party than from another race or religion, which you could say is progress. (laughs) But uh, And that's difficult. And again, it's the nature of media accentuate the differences. So you've got tribal media where you can make far more money playing to the extreme and demonizing the other side than you can by being a mainstream media source. And even those who are trying to be mainstream media sources, I mean, CNN, to be frank, is pathetic. Um, It's either somebody at one side screaming at somebody on the other, Or it's somebody spinning cynically on one side against somebody spinning on the other side. And all you think is there's no middle anymore. And that makes it just much harder. So are there things that we could do? One of the candidates we haven't mentioned, kind of a pseudo candidate, but still a candidate out there now, is Larry Lessig, uh, who's a professor at Harvard, who's running on one issue, which is uh, changing the campaign finance system. And he sees this.
0: Thank you, thank you. He's in the audience tonight.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I paid him. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, it's not the be-all and end-all, but it's a really important part of this. Another piece in the Washington Post the other day by two terrific reporters, Tom Hamburger and Matei Gold, about how now the parties, now that we've had another Supreme Court decision called McCutcheon, where basically a couple can give uh, about $1.3 million in a cycle to the parties. So there are no limits anymore effectively. And what are they doing? What they used to do before we had reform, which is there's a menu, a laundry list. Give $100,000, you get a one-on-one candlelit dinner with the speaker uh, or with a cabinet officer. And it's an overt trade of money for access and believe me, the access brings more than just a nice, quiet, candlelit dinner with Merlot. What? And how much more? And <laughs> and because we're entering
1: some other laws well, that I've
2: heard of. Um. Maybe, maybe he wears tight pants, I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, this is uh, really bad, and it is corrupting to the, uh, in the extreme, and pushing candidates in terms of what they'll do about that. Donald Trump, interestingly, basically says, this is a bad system, we ought to change it. Uh, Hillary Clinton has a very detailed plan, um, and it's an important issue, but frankly, it's not going to change until we change the Supreme Court.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I try and end this as a comedy show on some some <laughs> level, I just love the audience, audience. <laughs> oh, well, I guess I will um, go home and tell my friends what fun that was. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, a very big round of applause for the
3: brilliant,